you know, this is my hope is that we can find a spot that is kind of negotiating without constantly feeling like we're compromising. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with architect Amal Andreos, co-founder and principal of WorkAC. Amal, welcome. Thank you so much, Charles. It's really a pleasure to see you again, especially in these contexts. I know that, you know, in spite of the challenges of the past year and a half, you and your colleagues in the practice have been quite uh, busy, among others, uh, notable projects recently. You've recently completed the Success Student Center uh, at RISD in Providence. Tell us about that project and how you got started with it. Sure. Yeah, we're very excited. I mean, it was completed shortly before, before covid and you know, initially, really was started as um, an interior renovation of this '50s buildings that, nevertheless, looks uh, neoclassical. It used to be a lawyer's office, lots of cubicles, uh, not a lot of uh, windows necessarily, and this kind of really interesting U shape with a parking lot in the back. And you know, as architect, but also as dean, was very impressed and to see how much RISD does for its students in terms of career services and consulting on financial aid, et cetera, like really just a tremendous um, effort. And so the, the, the student center was really to support all these activities and bring them together in a kind of coordinated way and also allow for uh, to feel like there's a core at RISD where you can go and you might have shows in, in the gallery, et cetera. It's a very, very flexible space. You know, when we work, we do a lot of upfront kind of research we love you know we like to think about organizations and systems and and uh, how people come together in different ways and you know pushing against let's say closed offices open offices you know very interested in work culture so a lot of that work was being done for the interior renovation with very different constituents and and you know as institutions always include and very different voices and there was a small part of the program uh, that was called the mailroom and, you know, it's a mailroom. <laughs> and then slowly, you know, we started to understand that the mailroom, you know, needed to uh, accommodate you know, large amounts of packages, entire boxes, sometimes of, you know, food directly coming from Shenzhen or Shanghai from, you know, parents wanting to make sure their, their children were, were being well fed. So everything from the smallest letter to the biggest package to, uh, I mean, you name it, you know, we're, we're like a sick in terms of ordering stuff online. And, and so it, it really needed to be a scale of a building, a little building. But we were intrigued first. I mean, it was a kind of revelation. But second, we started to think, you know, what if this is the new version of the post office? Like, what can we, you know, how can we turn this moment of collecting uh, your packages into a kind of moment of really coming you know, coming together. Then there were ideas of, you know, all these cardboard boxes, what do you do with them? Uh, you know, could we have a kind of recycling system where uh, there's a station where students can open up the boxes, leave the cardboard, and then you have art students coming to pick up the cardboard. So thinking about systems and then including the kind of technology aspect where, you know, how would a student be not notified on campus when they get a package? Because, you know, the packages. Uh, can't stay more than 24 hours in the fridge. And we have, so this mailroom, in light of 
transformations in you know, technology and the way we live, et cetera, became a male building. And by the time it was a male building, you know, we proposed to RISD to you know, cut down costs by doubling its footprint in a way since already we were, we were building it and creating this you know, super flexible uh, event space, gallery space, et cetera. Uh, and all of that was inserted in the back of the U. So what was the parking lot became the opportunity for this insertion. So now the building has almost like an old entrance and a new entrance. And there's this dialogue where the back is the front and the front is the back and it's not you know, quite clear and, you know, anymore. And it, you know, that so-called back now really opens on the street. You see the, the auditorium flexible space from the street. You see the packages coming in and out and this kind of contemporary post office. And it, you know, it, it's a chance for students to come together in more ways than one. And I think it's been exciting for us because it's the kind of urban interventions that also speak to how we need to densify and you know, to turn these moments where the way we live is changing, but is there always an opportunity, shared moment of encounter, of surprise, you know, and, and, and a space that ultimately, while not being entirely public, is nevertheless still open in some ways. I mean, well, that description of the Student Center resonates in many ways with my perception of your work over many years in which, whether it's in the context of a, a building project, however grand or how modest at the same moment in research and teaching, always finding a way to evoke kind of urbanity, let's say. So when you describe the, the choreography of our you know, logistic supply chain, global as it is, and the comings and goings of uh, shipments and packages, care packages and otherwise, you invoke this idea of a kind of portal to the to the rest of the world. This was a condition that came, as I understand it, before the U.S. Postal Service were politicized in the United States. Is that yes? Do I do I have that right? You have it right. Did that politicization of the mail recently have any impact on your thinking about the project? You know, that's interesting. It should, but it maybe didn't didn't really. But but now that you pose the question, um, but it is interesting that even the postal system would be politicized at this time. I'm interested also in the, um, the perception that you and your colleagues brought about the relative, let's say, inadequacy of the, you know, the kinds of existing spatial programs we typically have. So, you know, as I think of a student center and the, the range of services on offer, you know, mailroom and the shipping and receiving end would not have immediately occurred, but clearly you're thinking about this in a way it seems uh, as connected to questions of logistics and the broader political economy and how that shapes urban uh, space. So, so in that regard, were RISD a receptive client for this kind of a proposition? Were they supportive of this shifting of the priorities of the program? They were. They were more receptive to this than to the open office. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was interesting. Like where, you know, what people hold on to in terms of how they want to work uh, you know, issues of privacy, et cetera. So like, that was a, you know, we were trying to be, to push towards a, a, a more open, open, you know, floor plan. And in the end, really understood that when it came to privacy with meeting with students, they really needed this. But, but on this other aspect of thinking exactly, as you said, like, you know, what are the systems today um, that, are, that are existing on campus that are part of student life and that could be registered uh, and, and supported, and not just supported, but enhanced to create something more, an opportunity to come together. And so, you know, this is one side of the building. And then on the interior side, 
the kind of interior renovation, you know, apart from the kind of, even the private meeting spaces becomes an object um, so that you don't read the kind of aggregate of the individual. And then the rest of the space is highly flexible with like, curtains that become classrooms, et cetera, et cetera, to, to recognize the need for, for a wide range of ways uh, for you know, people to come together on campus and different scales, um, et cetera. So a combination of still rigid private moments of encounter and then otherwise kind of building on the building as a kind of extension of the campus as, as a space of uh, encounter. And, and as you said, I think today, I mean, we try with the buildings to always make a claim for a quote unquote publicness, even if it's not, or at least a civic uh, ness, even if it's not necessarily entirely built in, uh, you know, ultimately it is a private, you know, institution. But in some contexts, you know, in certain, this may be generational. It might be in certain, you know, contextual uh, or relational conditions. The notion of, you know, civic or public strikes one as, in a way kind of quaint idea, let's say, right, in contemporary culture, et cetera, with the increasing, you know, kind of privatized neoliberal economy and the relative, you know, starvation of the the public institutions, let's say. But I guess the term that comes to mind thinking about the project and your description of it is really generosity, right? It's it's a kind of, there's a generosity, there's a kind of empathy about, you know, the the place that could be the quotidian, the mail room, the place where the student you know, goes and gets their package, their care package from back home, becoming a place that acknowledges its collectivity, and not just its kind of service function, not just its you know, questions of security, privacy, and otherwise, but the notion that this is a central part of our lives and it acknowledges it as such. And in some ways, maybe that generosity and empathy is also kind of ennobling. There's a sense of awareness and self-recognition that we're, we're all engaged in this, uh, in this new form of economy. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, the other option is what most of us live every day. The boxes arrive on our front door and it, I don't know about you, but I have tremendous guilt <laughs> and I'm trying to find an alternate, especially COVID really accelerated this trend, right? Of like click, click, you know, this, you know, for many of us, unfortunately. And, but here, I think you said the word collective, you know, what if we took all these front doors and brought them together to one place, you know, in a moment where uh, it is still an individual getting their box, but they might bump into someone else, et cetera. So there's still an idea of density of consolidating uh, some of these moments to share more in the city still. In this conversation, the, the notion of, you know, architecture or design as a, a way of seeing the world can move beyond just the, the prosaic accommodation of things that were are imposed upon us against our, you know, with, without our volition, let's say, these kind of larger structural forces. You know, how design, and I, I see it in, in your work at the Student Center at RISD and in other projects, design can not only accommodate, but also ennoble, elevate, you know, acknowledge somehow. Is there room within that to also offer, you know, through the medium of design, forms of critique? Like, is it possible to put this kind of practice in a kind of quotation mark or, or to, to wink at it and kind of acknowledge, you know, the elevation of what had been the, the practicalities of acquisition of, you know, your cardboard boxes? I believe maybe more than ever, the hope is that, that architecture should, should do that. It should still communicate or, you know, like there should be some aura left that the form of opening up or where there is uh, there are views or where 
there is access or, you know, that, that these speak to critique of what is typically, you know, what is done now and the potential uh, for transforming or reflecting or, but I, despite everything, we still try to do it in an optimistic, you know, use the, not maybe generous is more accurate now just to, despite failure, we will still believe that, that everybody will kind of recycle their cardboard and, you know, like, or that, that we're intervening in that system, which otherwise seems pretty, pretty hard to intervene in. You mentioned the position of the student center in um, what's a, a relatively modest kind of three-sided kind of courtyard, you say, former parking lot. Um, in that regard, I'm interested in the the role of the project in kind of filling up a space that had otherwise been maybe, let's say, how, how would you characterize how that space had been performing, both as an architect, but also as a kind of citizen of the world? It was very underused, uh, even as a parking lot. Uh, you know, I'm sure the few faculty members or other who used it to park their cars or, or staff, you know, have lost that. Also the fact that it was slightly elevated from the street. So this is not even, you know, there's a problem of access and, and the kind of negotiation wasn't there. So as you're walking, you're, you're mostly walking against the wall. And so that was a big thing for us. How do you break the wall? And at the moment of the, the kind of drop-off part, it really comes down. And at the moment where it's very high, it opens up architecturally, right? So even, even though, uh, it's not touching the sidewalk, you still feel like you're invited because of the, the canopy. So I think the, the architecture does a lot to, to reclaim that space as a space that meets the street for, for pedestrians, for you know, people walking by, for the restaurant across the street, not to look at, a, at a, the back of a building that's a un, you know, hardly used parking lot, but, but something that opens up and is inviting and, and kind of promises someone to be part of the larger campus. And I, and I think it goes back to, you know, we're still caught when we think about, you know, environmentally conscious design, let's say it often as an architect, the frame is constantly put around the building and how it performs and what are the green systems and the bells and whistles. And we weren't going for lead, you know, for this project, but the fact that this is a small insertion, you know, in a parking lot, that's a kind of adaptive reuse of the city and a building, you know, I think these are the kinds of ways in which it's a way to think about urban, urban interventions that are filling in strategic ways to create more opportunities for experiences and, and, and kind of collectivity somehow. So well beyond the, um, you know, kind of accountancy, let's say, of, um, of uh, these accreditation certification systems, um, the notion of the basic use of, you know, the storage of, you know, a dozen or so, you know, kind of carbon machines as opposed to a place for thinking about how to sort and resort and recycle material in a kind of edifying way. Um, to what extent, you know, were, were you or your colleagues aware of or thinking about either in the project or in retrospect, the, the status of what I think of as a pretty extraordinary group of, you know, smaller buildings and projects across um, across the RISD campus. I mean, I mean, as we, we mentioned, you know, RISD was formed uh, in the 19th century as design was being brought as a rubric. Um, and, it, you know, design in the 19th century in a place like um, the, the Cooper Union or the Rhode Island School of Design, design signaled, you know, a kind of progressive era opening of, you know, arts and crafts to people that wouldn't have otherwise had access to the academy to be architects, right? It was initially uh, in its formulation in London and other schools in the United States, uh, schools for women, schools for immigrants. And I wondered to what extent you're mindful of either that tr progressive design tradition or the notion of 
RISD having curated an extraordinary realm of these smaller projects that end up having an outsized impact in architectural discourse? Yeah, I mean, that, that's why they, they were such an exciting you know, client and to be part of that you know, legacy and part of that campus in that way. And I think that's why there was ambition, you know, even though, you know, the budget was tight, you know, I mean, the usual, right, but the ambition, the ambition for design to do more was very much there on everybody's mind. You know, I mean, we cut the green roof at the end, but we nevertheless painted, you know, we painted the, the roof so that, you know, when you, when different people look at it uh, from, from the building, um, they still have a graphic, you know, kind of expression. And so things like that. And I, I think that, the big part was how do we intervene in a recent but nevertheless historical context. And so a lot of thought was put into the play of color in terms of echoing the brick and, you know, when does it reveal itself? And, you know, how do we insert a very contemporary sort of intervention uh, and yet make it kind of resonate in terms of its scale, its uh, materiality? And, and, you know, that play was very crucial for us. Another context in which um, you and your colleagues have been invited to contribute in an ensemble of otherwise notable projects has been uh, in Miami, where uh, you've completed this Miami Museum garage um, in the context of the design district. I mean, in the conversations here in the future of the American city, you know, we have been interested in Miami as a kind of laboratory for design and for thinking about the city. And Acknowledging that that's a very particular um, context, I wonder if you could tell us something about how you got that project and how it, you came to produce this quite extraordinary kind of exuberant um, accommodation for the automobile in Miami. We were invited actually by Terry Riley. We were very saddened by you know his loss this, this past year, and Terry, who's done so much you know to support architects and, and colleagues, and and so he invited us uh, along with. Jürgen Meyer and, and others and himself um, to, to think about this, this parking garage, you know, working with Craig Robbins and, and you know, thinking uh, about the design district in general. And um, there's, I mean, this is, you know, Miami obviously has an incredible legacy of inventive, uh, you know, parking garages, not just uh, in terms of themselves, Zaha or Herzog and the Moreau, et cetera, but also the kind of architectonica, you know, very early, super lush uh, green thickened screen we love that that kind of interventions and again what we had what we noticed is we were supposed to skin this building right i mean we were supposed to just you know the idea of skin and then the intent is as an architect you really focus on the fabrication the, the, which is which is super important but it was also and as important for us to make a claim for uh, for the street and and for you know if not entirely public some kind of collective realm and so we negotiated that we could use the entire four feet of the the kind of facade we were given and rather than treated simply as a skin uh, treated as a space a vertical space and so it, so instead of so it really became about this hyper dense vertical promenade, uh, aspirational programs from library to a, a big kind of art, sort of urban wall to an event space at the top, uh, playground, you know, this sort of almost fantasy of what can happen uh, for different kinds of people at different ages as you walk down from the parking lot and into, into the street. Whatever thickness we have left is one we want to 
occupy with more than surface uh, somehow, I think, uh, was, the, was the kind of goal. The, the really interesting part about the project, it was supposed to be a cadaveric ski without knowing what each other was doing. And then we, we kind of realized that uh, Jürgen was, also had this kind of weird finger scheme. And so, you know, we, we designed the corner together, kind of turning the corner with these sort of fingers coming together. And that was, you know, the, that also doesn't happen often enough in the kind of urban context where, you know, two architects come together and say, okay, we're going to simultaneously reflect one another or, or enter into a dialogue. Uh, and that was that was really fun. You mentioned the um, Herzog and Demeron 1111 Lincoln Road uh, parking garage, which I think for, for many people outside of Miami was one of the, the first, uh, you mentioned Architectonica's kind of line of work in parking garages. It's true that Miami today, based on our research, has as many interesting, compelling contemporary takes uh, from a design point of view on the parking garage as any city I've found. I mean, even more so than Las Vegas or Los Angeles, I can point to a good two dozen buildings that are worth their own tour, uh, your own included. I'm interested in this notion of the, the four foot of depth and the idea that you're, you know, finding, seeking, identifying the parameters, the limits, whether it be the depth of a mail room or the depth of the facade. Um, and clearly this project, it's, it's literate about the recent history of affect and ornament, but moves past that towards something that I would describe as a kind of musculature, like there's something anatomical about this thing, the way that it's kind of opening up. And and it's not just the pink that pops through, there is that, but it's also this notion of the kind of the body being exposed. In that sense, what would be interesting to me would be to know more about the the kinds of programmatic demands or or uses or forms of encounter to, to pick up the conversation from uh, the student center. I think this notion of thickness and, and the envelope, uh, we've been really going back to now for, for some time. You know, when Alejandro Zerapolo said this was the only thing left for architects, we took him on his word and said, okay, we, one, we resist, but two, you know, the thickened envelope is, is nevertheless still the space of negotiation between inside and outside. Any environmental sort of uh, relationship happens, happens in, in that space, but also it is the space of uh, negotiation between the urban uh, and the architectural and between private and public. You know, Amal, it occurs to me that um, while this may be a stereotype that hopefully is changing, you know, architects don't always have a, a great reputation for working together. In this one project in the design district in Miami, Terry Riley, uh, who we've tragically lost recently with Jürgen Meyer H, Work AC, You've got a number of practices, sensibilities, skill sets coming together on, on one block for one building. And I wonder if, on the one hand, if that doesn't pr produce or present certain kind of challenges, but also, is there a form of urbanity that gets built into the project? I mean, I, I guess from my point of view, the design district does have a history. It's not insignificant here, but in its recent incarnation and certainly given your project, I, I don't take the garage to be one that's making contextual references, let's say, to its surrounding environment. Is it possible that the collaboration produces the kind of friction and accommodation and negotiation that you see in a city in the space of one building? Is that too much of a reach? Yeah, no, I, it's just, a, I was tying it in terms of the, the sort of feedback loop between all these projects where we were really trying to push this idea of the, the envelope coming back as a space of inhabitation and a space of negotiation between 
you know, the sort of vertical and horizontal, the space of the private and the, and the public, the, the urban and the architectural. And in Miami, the program was, there was no program. We came back with a manifesto for uses uh, and, you know, that sort of imagined what would be exciting for the design district um, that it doesn't have. And so obviously art, um, the possibility for music, uh, DJ, um, the kind of little sharing library, the kids area, the electric car charger. I mean, you know, kind of polemical uh, sort of, again, expanding the uses only as excuses for, for stopping uh, and, and, you know, kind of enjoying this sort of weird moment between getting out of your car uh, and getting into another building and having a kind of urban, urban experience in a way. You know, typically when you'll bring architects together for a new neighborhood or, you know, or new development, you know, there are guidelines. <laughs> there are guidelines in terms of taste and because nobody wants a zoo. Uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, and yet the zoo is often what we like about the intensity of the urban experience, right? Is is the fact that you, know, you haven't designed everything and controlled everything, and and uh, you know there are parameters. The building had a scale, and and you you know that you have uh, zoning, you have egress, you have these things we all had to work on, but there were no aesthetic guidelines apart from the fact that we just had you know, freedom and, and this coming together, I think did create a density of expressions, which then we, we you know, no individual statement stands out. Like it, it really became a kind of whole. And, you know, we made a point of not of really going to, whenever we were published, it was always together. You know, there was kind of really fun commitment to each other with our little garage. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, but I think your point is really, um, you know, how do we, like, is this an opportunity where you bring architects together, but you're not toning down uh, the fact, uh, the differences you're, uh, or, you know, kind of creating this aesthetic um, and, and rather letting it all uh, come together as if it happened over time, as if, you know. I mean, I, I hear um, in those words and I see in your, in your, in your work over many years, um, a sense of, um, a societal ethic, you know, I mean, I, I guess, you know, small s societal, small c civic, you know, the notion that through the media of architecture, somehow one, you know, in spite of the context in which we live, in spite of political economy or the particular environmental challenges, the notion that one could, you know, find ways to both elevate and noble, you know, um, the human experience. And in, in that sense, I think, you know, however modest the project scope may have been or how many years it takes, um, those kinds of commitments strike me as also a bit of a shift I see in design culture. For example, you know, um, as opposed to being given the false choice to either go directly into a, you know, fee for service, you know, design firm to work off uh, student debt as opposed to going to work for the public sector. I find our students these days, I wonder if you've found this as well, our students more often than not want to form their own not-for-profit or their own 501c3. Many of them see no contradiction between design or the identity of the architect and the idea of being socially engaged. No, I think what's really important uh, that, I'm, that I'm hearing is, certainly for us, nothing is small enough. Nothing is too small, too thin, we will put all our energies into 
into anything. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we will fall in love with redesigning a small park. We will, the desire is to have more opportunities to, to work, whether it's with pub, private development, with, you know, public, with institutions, with, I mean, we're doing this, you know, tiny uh, renovation of a completely disfigured McKim Mead and White interior space to turn it into uh, an experimental music venue for issue project room. And we are working on this with New York, with the DDC uh, program. I, I honestly think that it's been more than 10 years that we're starting to, we're trying to get it uh, off the ground and like things, who pays for the building permit has become an issue. I mean, ridiculous things, but we, we still love those projects because we've been there before and we know how meaningful it is when it all comes together and, and you have people in there. We still have that passion of like you, you're trying to, to be architects. Uh, in 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 the in whatever idealism that is that is left. So a, a call for um, hybridity and flexibility is what I'm hearing, which is you know it's the identity of the architect, the ethical commitment, the societal commitment, and then multiple pathways. Students and and faculty, I, I I'm very encouraged by where the conversation is now, uh, and you know, but I still don't believe that the nonprofit is the only it's the only way to go. I think that model has its own problems where, you know, then the architect is the fundraiser. And, you know, I think it really poses, still poses questions of the value of, you know, what, why should this work not, not be paid? And so anyway, this is, this is a different conversation. I, I, st I, I still think we need to multiply the models um, of practice and we need to, you know, be engaged politically, et cetera. We're very committed to whatever we can do to work on more public projects. And if they're not public, you know, is there a civic quality? Is there something that we can say, uh, we can create? I don't think we're ready to go nonprofit. I mean, to, to go, you know, I, I think that's a, because we, we still want to do it from within the architectural practice in a more traditional sense. We'll see. I, you know, this is, this is my hope is that we can, somehow the practice can find a spot that is kind of, negotiating without constantly feeling like we're compromising. I would be remiss without bringing up uh, one of my personal favorites. This is a project that's now a long time ago, over a dozen years ago now, um, 49 Cities. This was an exhibition project that's become a publication. It's at least run through its third printing, as far as I can tell. I mean, if you, if you don't know this project, it's an extraordinary piece of work, which takes urban projects, urban speculative projects across history, various cultures, and places them in a kind of comparative frame. What was the inspiration for that project? Where did the idea come from? Was it an exhibition first and then a book? Do I have that correct? And like, what, what about that comparative model of these speculative projects um, appealed to you to start that work? It's still our favorite. We still come back to it because there's a sort of immediacy and, and you know, seemingly simplicity that actually, I, I think the tensions that are in this book are very much still the tensions that we see today when we think about the urban scale in light of climate change. You know, the, the reason, so when we first, we first uh, started the practice in 2003, very interested already in issues of ecology and urbanism and bringing the two questions together. Um, and then teaching at Princeton, realizing we have all this technology, we have no ideas, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and look at all these ideas that architects had and, and so it was a sort of almost rejection a little bit of the, 
of the tech side to, to re-engage with the, the idea side, the political side, the, the social side, the, all these ambitions that had form. Uh, and, but we're not just form makers and that's why the book has two sides. It does have the kind of data crunching ingredient list on one side and then the, the formal qualities you know, on the other and the two are intention, but they work together. Um, and I, you know, I think today, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm stepping down from the deanship and advising on the climate school and sort of all things climate a little bit at the university, you know, I find myself constantly pushing back on the idea that the smart city and data is going to save us and you know going back to in the end we know what it takes we, we need to be denser we need like there are these very fundamental uh, uh, ideas that are still crucial and so we need the data side and the engineering side but but it's not going to work without the other side which is the formal political social um, vision for how we want to live together a part of what I found audacious about that project and still I think speaks to its enduring qualities is on the one hand, the relative simplicity, like that on one level, it's very straightforward. On another level, it's the, the gathering of these things that had been sorted to different eras, um, different authors. There was something about that rhetorically that I still find remarkably elegant in terms of both elevating data, the comparative method, but more so than the, the quantitative taking them seriously as propositions. You mentioned um, your new role. So congratulations, first of all, on your very successful uh, deanship at Columbia. Uh, you're being promoted, as it were, to advise the president, Lee Bollinger, on the Columbia Climate School. Could you just share a few words about what your uh, goals are in that work and what you think you might be able to accomplish in that new role? Sure, yeah, it's very exciting. I, I really see this as a, not a, a sort of continuity uh, in a way with with the with sort of the focus that I sort of supported at, at GSAP. I've been a very I was a very internal dean, you know, very very kind of you know their internal deans, and so I, I see this as a ex, ex, my external my slightly more external role. Um, and there's you know different different aspects. One is now having this experience of running a school, if not building one, I, I want to support this new endeavor and, and you know, nothing is easy. Uh, and, you know, just kind of share a lot of that. I call it download knowledge, you know, before, before I completely give up, uh, you know, just transfer that. Um, and, but on the other side, I'm very eager to, um, you know, right now there is the science piece and science and research piece. There is the engineering piece, obviously food piece, uh, disaster um, recovery piece, etc. And you know, want to contribute also some thinking about the built environment uh, as being central uh, to addressing climate change, and 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 precisely not just from a purely engineering aspect, but bringing what I think as architects. Uh, and planners and preservationists, you know, bringing the kind of social political, um, you know, dimension as well to the conversation. So, so it's contributing uh, that lens. And so that's a kind of second aspect, which is the more intellectual aspect. But the third aspect, um, which I think might be interesting is just starting now, but, you know, we're really thinking about three, three campuses that are totally different, right? You've got Morningside, old buildings, 
everybody complains, but actually I'm sure they're performing much better than, than we think. Manhattanville, you know, brand new, you know, uh, topmost engineering performance. Uh, uh, you know, you th think of Renzo and the master of glass, you know. Um, and, then, and then Lamont, which is so interesting, it's this good series of buildings uh, in, in the landscape, you know, sort of almost suburban, uh, really weird collection of buildings, terrible performance environmentally. Um, so it's also like, how do we intervene in this moment of thinking about decarbonization and, and infrastructure? Like, could we also look at our own campuses uh, and, 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 and think about them as a, as a space of experimentation? And I know many universities are starting to, you know, even COVID showed that we're, we're mini cities, you know, I mean, like the systems that we needed to reinvent for COVID uh, are very close to, you know, systems that small cities had to, had to think about. It strikes me that, uh, you know, uh, the university and the president's office are very fortunate to have you uh, advising them. So Amal Andres, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.